If you were able to make impact visible and every single company would be completely transparent, it is totally obvious that only the companies that have positive impact would thrive and be financially successful. You will never be successful unless you recognize that it's an entire endeavor that requires cooperation. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. Together, we have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how social impact can exist in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. We hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of social impact for you and feeling inspired by the potential to do good. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today's guest is Fleur Haynes. Fleur is the co-founder of Proof of Impact, a technology company that enables the tracking, measurement, and verification of the impact of investments. Fleur was previously the founder and CEO of Global Trader, now the largest online stockbroker and trading platform in South Africa. She has been an investor, advisor, and founding shareholder of many initiatives across South Africa and Europe, including Emerge Education, Clearly So, and Ardmore Design. Welcome, Fleur. Hi, guys. Good afternoon from Cape Town. So great to have you. Thank you so much for joining. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's dive in. Your story is fascinating to me, and I would love if you could unpack it for us. You've been involved in the world of impact investing, but you've also worked in traditional investing, and you founded a company, you exited it, and you also have a biochemistry degree. I would love if you could tell us a little bit more about you know, what brought you to where you are now and maybe even highlight some of the common threads. Sure, I would, I would love to do that. So to quote Steve Jobs, you never really plan your life going forward, but you kind of connect the dots going backwards. So starting with the biochemistry degree, the actual essay I wrote to get accepted at my university, which was Oxford University, was um, developing vaccinations for RNA-based viruses. Holy Guess cow. what is an RNA-based virus, which is corona right now. That was at the age of 17, but it was also at the age of when we didn't have real internet or email. So that essay was a one-off copy that I probably can't retrieve anywhere, which is a bit of a shame because I would have loved to have read what I wrote all those years ago. Oh my gosh. You know, I wrote a paper in college that predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. Wow. And I really? In 19, like 88 or 89, I wrote that and I lost that paper too. I'm so bummed. Imagine if we both had those papers still, huh? I'm going to go dig in the file right now. Oxford and Stanford. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go dig in their digital okay, file. I'm sorry to interrupt. But I had to say that. <laughs> But um, so as, as both of you know, uh, once you go to some of those universities, you get not headhunted, but it's like this thing called the milk round. They call this in Oxford and Cambridge, where you get all the banks and you get the consultancy firms who come and sort of, you know, pick talent. So I was picked up by, a, well, I was engaged and enthralled by a very dynamic group of Goldman Sachs women, actually, who came to my college because I was at a single sex uh, college. It was Somerville College, the same college that Margaret Thatcher and Indira Gandhi 
Gandhi uh, studied at. And actually, my year was the last year of um, single sex. They went co-ed the year after, which is probably a good thing. But yeah, so got picked up, uh, went to join JP Morgan and, you know, had a, obviously a natural tendency to think about going into the pharmaceutical direction and mergers and acquisitions. I ended up actually doing more of a generalist role in M&A. So I got pretty bored, you know, sitting at a desk in London from 7 a.m. to 4 a.m. every day just wasn't really what was inspiring me. So this is now 1998 and I had read Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom um, because in my gap year before joining them, I did spend some time in South Africa and I asked the bank, can I go to South Africa? Now it's opening up and you guys want to expand there. So they said, sure. So I ended up as a 23 year old moving to Johannesburg, which was actually fine because my father, thank God, had already done quite a lot of business in South Africa because I don't think many parents would have sent their daughter at that age to go to what is known as the most dangerous city in the world. And I had a fantastic job. I mean, I joined the bank only for three months because then I was approached by another entrepreneur who had this brilliant idea of using the internet to connect emerging market investors to global markets. And that was the the origin of Global Trader. We developed a business plan. He then basically said, you know, are you willing to run it? I said, I don't actually even know what a bid offer spread is because I'm not a trader. But uh, yeah, I'll give it a go. So that was the the start of my first startup in Africa. That's amazing. Um, So that was... That was Global Trader then. That was Global Trader. And then we had a pretty good run. So we became a a technology business by default because there was nothing off the shelf that we could buy to give people direct access to financial markets. So we built everything ourselves. And then to cut a long story short, we had a seven year, you know, rocket rise run. We expanded into Asia. We expanded into North America, Canada. The type of trading we were doing was actually illegal in the US. And then we offered the same products to investors in Russia, which is actually where I ended up in the end. So uh, we got to 2007, the peak of the markets of all time. We had about a billion dollars of overnight risk on a very small balance sheet. And it just made sense to sell the company because it required a lot more capital moving forward. So we all exited. And wait, wait, um, what, I, what month did you sell it in, in 2007? In November, 2007. Oh, okay. That's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, that was already yeah. after the Lehman defaults and everything. Yeah, that was after August. No, actually, the, the Lehman default, I think, happened. It was the 2007 or 2008. The markets hadn't really crashed yet, but it was definitely good timing. And then, like Eva, I was a member of YPO, and I was feeling pretty, how do you call it? It's like this anti-climax that you have as an entrepreneur when you sell your business. And for seven years, that business is everything that you do, 24 hours, seven days a week. You live it, you breathe it, and suddenly you're not there anymore to run it. So that was a bit of... an awkward moment and I spotted this opportunity to go to the School World Forum which is Jeff School the founder of eBay has this big conference in Oxford which is obviously a comfort zone and YPO had a meeting there so I attended and I saw that there was this group of business people who not only cared about what was happening to the world from a climate change perspective, from providing education, but they wanted to solve for these problems in a commercially viable way. And that really sparked something in me because 
I'm not really necessarily someone who is philanthropically or charitable minded. Like I like things to be independent, sustainable and self-sufficient. So a business model is super important for me to really be able to add value to any activity. So in 2008, I found my first uh, investment. It was a, an entrepreneur uh, called Jan Matern, who also came from Oxford, who started an ed tech accelerator called Emerge Education. And he needed some help. So I became a founding shareholder effectively. And this is now Europe's largest and most successful accelerator and early stage fund in the ed tech space. So that was a, a nice sort of an opening and just good to warm up. And then the following year, I dragged my husband to come to the same School World Forum because he was still working in an investment bank in Russia. And I wanted him just to experience what it's like when you're surrounded by people who aren't just, you know, competent, successful business business people but the ones who actually care about things and he came a little bit kicking and screaming because he's like oh my god it's going to be like women with purple hair and goat wooden socks and they're going to be vegan i mean ed you probably know the type <laughs> ed is a vegan well well sometimes funny enough, so are we now pretty much but at the time we weren't and um we arrived in oxford and the first guy we meet is this belgian guy called bart smates who's stroking his hairless rats on the steps of the oxford business school because he's got a fascinating story how these rats are used to detect landmines and even tb because they've got such great olfactory uh, properties so he almost did a runner but he stayed and um, he saw a few <laughs> panels and again, he was just, again, fascinated. The same thing that that it struck me struck him. So he then sent, uh, well, he actually gave his business card to one of the panelists who was talking about how irrigation pumps, actually selling irrigation pumps to farmers in East Africa is probably the best way to ensure that children get educated, which makes no sense on the face of it. But when you dig a little bit deeper, and that's how the impact space works, when you look at cause and effect, if you look at the ability of a farmer to farm his land more effectively, which then allows him to have spare capacity, spare money to then send his children to school, it actually makes more sense to invest in an irrigation pumps business than building schools if you want to educate children. Yeah, you know, so, that, that's interesting because I, I have a friend who's doing code academies in Guatemala, you know, like in the rural villages to like teach these young kids how to, how to program computers. The biggest challenge they have is that they're, they're needed on the farm, you know? And so it's like you, you, you think about the systems there and the, the family business or the farm is kind of like where it all starts for them. And in order for them to be able to grow out of that, they have to have other solutions still not solved yet, but yeah, that systematic thinking is really sort of the crux of it all in the impact space. It also teases you a little bit. It makes you apply your mind. So whereas in financial fund management, you know, there's a pretty well-trodden path on how to uh, recognize value in assets. That's not necessarily the case in impact assets. It is sometimes less clear what is going to deliver what positive outcome. So that, that was a, a really good sort of wake-up call for my husband as well. So he went back to Russia. He resigned from his partnership and he then actually made an investment in a startup called Osmosis Investments uh, Management, which is now a very significantly large fund manager that invests in public equities. And the thesis that they have to make their investments has nothing to do with the financial characteristics of these public equities. They exclusively look at resource efficiency data of these assets. So they look at a company that's like a car manufacturer and they say, 
per dollar revenue, how much waste does this car manufacturer produce? How much water does it need? How much energy does it need? And on that basis, they make these allocations and their multiple billion dollar fund outperforms the underlying indices because if you're looking at resource efficiency management and people who are measuring something, they will improve what they measure. So they are it's an indirect measure of great management teams when you select assets on that basis. And that was kind of for me the trigger to think about, okay, hold on. In public equities, that's cool because we have a lot of information, relatively speaking. They've got quarterly disclosures and annual reports. But how do we actually get a similar type of of information and therefore indicators in private investments that are non-financial, right? That are socially driven or environmental outputs that could indicate future financial value. And that's kind of been the thing that I've been working on for the last 10 years. Incredible. And so many dots to connect. I want to turn to proof of impact and what you're doing now. Before doing that quick fact check, Lehman filed for bankruptcy on September 15, 2008 for our listeners. But when we're talking about, as one of our prior guests put it, Jennifer Ketting, changing the scoreboard for investing, proof of impact is really kind of sitting at the at the center of that. Your mission statement is to develop the technological innovations needed to make investing and in impact tangible transparent and verifiable. Can you jump into, you know, even even kind of giving us your kind of elevator pitch and what you're trying to solve for with with your new business? Absolutely. So so the hypothesis that we have and I think Eva and Ed we all share this that if you were able to make impact visible and every single company would be completely transparent. It is totally obvious that only the companies that have positive impact would thrive and be financially successful. I don't think there's a person on the planet that would dispute that. The problem, however, is, is we don't have the impact data. So therefore, it is impossible for us to compare assets based on impact, which is why we're only referring to looking at them from a financial metrics point of view. So our role at Proof of Impact is to create a technology solution. So not a consultancy-driven model, because that's just too expensive and it's not scalable, but a technology solution that allows us to collect this impact information, this ESG information, real time to then verify it because we're not only collecting it from the company sources or relying on self-reported data, we're verifying this by obtaining objective information. We're using the latest technologies in sensors, devices, drones, satellites, or community reporting to get higher quality data. And then we can analyze that. And then we can say, do you know what? If you do actually fund a business that sells irrigation pumps, the outcome of that business is educating children. Or if we're looking at financial metrics, if you really want to drive revenue growth, then you need to make sure that you pay your your employees at least 10% above minimum wage because that's going to drive productivity and that's going to get your revenues up. So these are kind of the analysis that we just currently cannot do because we don't have an accurate data set of non-financial key performance indicators in any asset category. 
one of the sort of topics that's fascinated me, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Bob Chapman, who's uh, sort of like the truly human leadership guy. He's the CEO of Barry Weimiller. It's a, a big global manufacturer of food production equipment or something like that. He is a conscious capitalism guy and had a chance to meet him some years back. And his philosophy is that you can do more good in the world by sending your people home with enough energy to be good parents than you can with a lot of other things. Because when 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 you can really be there for your kids, the social benefits, you know, the kids do better in school. They they tend to cause less trouble. You know, they end up, you know, having less crime and so on. And so I wonder if your if your impact measurements in any way on the employee side get into the follow-on effects with with children at home and and kind of how that cascades into better outcomes for society. Well, and I think I think you're touching on a super interesting topic, which is is a slight deviation from what we can currently do at Proof of Impact because that's getting into you know being able to track people's behaviors and moods and etc. And I think we will ultimately get there, but at the moment, the Proof of Impact solution really addresses the more binary aspects. So has something happened, yes or no, rather than a more subjective approach. But maybe this is sort of a good segue into what is the other driver in my life. So I've been studying Eastern philosophy for the last 10 years. There's a a philosophy called Vedanta, which is 10,000 years old. It was pre-religion. And if you look at any scientist in the world, if you look at Einstein or Tesla, or if you look at Emerson as poets or Wandsworth, they all basically got their genius from studying this original philosophy. And what does this philosophy tell you? It's not about you changing the world, it's about you changing you, right? So if you can develop yourself to become the best human being, and what is being the best human being? It's what you say just now, it's about being mindful of others. It's coming home and not thinking, oh my God, I'm so exhausted, I've worked all day, those kids better just go and watch a video game. It's about thinking about them, giving them the attention they deserve. And the payback, if you want to call that, right? The return on your investment is so high when you do that, that if you can live your life that way as a leader, as a parent, as a member of a community, if everybody did that, which is kind of what's called like, you know, social consciousness, we probably wouldn't even need impact investments or any form of philanthropy because the world will look after itself. You look after you, the world will then be sorted out. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. You know, when I think of you, having known you for a number of years, Fleur, I think of technology and innovation. And it's really lovely to hear kind of that there's also a faith behind behind you and, and what you're doing. Just thinking a little bit more about how you're actually verifying. Is it possible that you could give us a concrete example of, you know, maybe one of the the engagements that you've had? So, I mean, now that we're going into, you know, deeper into the the 21st century, we recognize that it's not so much what you produce or what your return is that matters, but how did you produce the return, right? It's actually a very similar life. It's not what you do that matters. It's how you do it that really makes a difference. So when we look at verifying what we call, you know, impact data in companies, we're looking at what social standards is this company adhering to? So can we prove that they paid minimum wage? wages to all their workers? Can we prove that there's no forced labor, that there's no child labor? Can we prove that there was some development that happened with the employees? They were happy. So those are more the social standards. And Eva, it's quite interesting that we actually find 
more innovation in terms of being able to use technology-driven verification in emerging markets and in developed markets. So I'll give you an example of a company called Industry, which is a, a basket weaver in India that makes woven baskets for IKEA. IKEA, as everybody knows, is the most conscious retailer that came out of Sweden. And IKEA in its DNA itself, even you know, disregarding the market trends for conscious consumers to want to buy sustainable products, they have always wanted to be a sustainable company. So when they engage with their supply chain companies, they want to make sure that these companies adhere to quite high standards. So what they have asked us to do is rather than having a guy with a clipboard that comes in and, for instance, measures these social standards in these manufacturing facilities to make sure that they're responsible, they've asked us to integrate with some of the technology operating systems that are already present in India, in the, in, in the rural areas to obtain data. So what are these operating systems? Well, some of them are the same that everybody uses, right? So there's an ERP system that tracks how many salary payments you make. There is like a Salesforce system that can track, you know, the number of clients that you have, et cetera. And this is all information that's kind of interesting, but it's not interesting necessarily from an impact perspective, but it all provides a layer of information. But then what we do is we connect into the other system. The other system is a biometric system in India where every individual or 1.1 billion people in India have a biometric identity. So when they walk into a manufacturing plant, they put in a fingerprint and when they walk out, they put in a fingerprint. And this biometric identity is also connected to their mobile money wallet, which is where they get their salary payments from. So we can then extract the file on a monthly basis from the mobile money wallets issuer that basically pays into these individual accounts. And we can then get the number that was paid to them divided by the number of hours that we knew they were working on site. And we have a very accurate measure of minimum wage. So that's just one example to show you that by obtaining objective information, not just self-reported, hey, this is our salary number per month and this is how many employees we have, we can actually validate that people were paid adequately. And then if you want to go one level on top of that, you know, were these people happy? Are they fulfilled with their job? Do they think that everything is, you know, running in good order? You can do these employee surveys, which you also then connect into the same system. I know that in verifying this information, you're using blockchain technology. What's next? Like why using blockchain is, could actually be important and what else you can do with this information? Yeah, so blockchain has been a buzzword for a while, you know, as cryptocurrencies are again on the rise. I think we're going to see more of it. But but to be clear, so so blockchain for us is, a, is an engineering tool and it does two things. One is it doesn't actually verify information. So the blockchain is like most databases. If you put inaccurate information in, it will remain inaccurate on the blockchain. It can't miraculously change inaccurate information into verified information. But what you can do is that once you have built up enough proof points that you believe the data is accurate. So this minimum wage example I gave you, you have the company's accounts, you have the mobile money wallet, you've got the biometric, all of this adds up to a high degree of certainty that people were paid minimum wage. Then you store that information on the blockchain. And once it's on the blockchain, no one can, you know, it, it's immutable. So that means that you do then have a database. And then particularly in certain, you know, countries or, you know, in areas where there may not be great audibility in general, 
or a tendency to maybe, you know, massage data or whatever, that would not be possible anymore once it's on the blockchain. But as you say, Eva, just using the blockchain to store data, quite frankly, is not really the best use of blockchain. Why we are already storing our data on the blockchain is because we see a potential for securitizing these data bundles into investment products, into digital investment products. So the first example is still in that, you know, that industry example where if you have information that people are responsibly manufacturing products, they're using sustainable materials, they are treating their people well. When this company goes to the market and wants to go and borrow capital, it basically has a far lower risk profile than a company that doesn't have this information verified let alone stored. It can use that bundle to go to the capital markets and say, lend me money, not at 10%, but at 5%, because that's the appropriate risk, return, impact requirement for this kind of asset. And this is kind of what we see will happen in the evolution of digitizing the impact economy, or in fact, we think we're not even going to use the word impact anymore, we'll just use the economy. And people will be using this data to gain access to capital at a cost that is related not only to their financial data, but to their impact data as well. And that for us is the North Star. Like that's what we gives us goosebumps because then the winners win. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like a win-win in our portfolio that at Beyond Capital, if we could link a dollar value to our impact, I think there would be a lot to unlock as well as an investor. Well, that's another thing, Eva, that with working with you, we really sort of have to sharpen our tools on is that you're a fund manager, right? You are somebody who leads to the impact that you are achieving in your fund, obviously intertwined with financial results. And you rightfully are asking, okay, if you're collecting all this information, you do ultimately, you know, may want to make investment decisions based on information, but you're also looking for additional insights that you wouldn't get if the only information was the data that was reported in an annual report because it's static and it really doesn't have a huge amount of granularity. So again, you know, doing the work that we're doing with you, you would be able to see during the year that there are certain events that cause, you know, a certain blip maybe in a payment solution or a certain reduction in productivity or a certain reduction in, you know, the way that the company was treating waste or whatever it is that would never be visible. And with that granular information again, you can make decisions to either help the company better because you actually know what's going on rather than what they tell you that's going on. And again, you can use that information also to tell your story so that other investors are more inclined to co-invest with you or invest into you. So Fleur, if you securitize this though, from let's say a factory in in India, isn't IKEA I'm really more interested in having that be sort of proprietary to them. No. So, so firstly, the information isn't IKEA's information. So maybe I should correct it. So it's a supply chain company to IKEA that has the information and whether IKEA wants this information or not, right, is not the point with the securitization. The securitization data is, is, it belongs to the supplier. So it is absolutely in their interest if they can get better cost of capital to make this information public to investors so that they can reduce their borrowing costs 
borrow twice as much money, grow twice as fast. You're on both sides of that then. So they're a sort of a supply, you know, they're a participant in a sort of marketplace for that on the supply side. And then you would have other people sort of buying or getting access to that data. Totally right. So the reason why IKEA would be interested on it from the other side of the coin is not for the investment reasons, but you're right. It's for their own compliance. So if they had a dashboard where they can see where their 2,800 supply chain companies are in real time in terms of are they meeting compliance are there some hiccups or are they not meeting compliance so it's green orange red then they could also execute a much faster risk response and that data they probably don't want to have made public because they'd rather have that for their internal systems rather than having the public know it but there is also i think an extension where ultimately i think we will see qr codes on every consumer product that goes to market where the consumer will be able to digitally connect into the producer and they will then also be able to see that scorecard of how that producer performed from an environmental and social social perspective, like almost like a nutritional label, you know? So if you go to the supermarket and you're a diabetic, you need to make sure there's no sugar in your food. Well, if you're an investor of the 21st century, you want to make sure that this company adhered to the processes and policies and the values that you believe in. And you want to see that nutritional label. Yeah. It's something we talk a lot about with purpose-driven leaders and, you know, thinking about how to integrate your values into your whole life. So I want to turn to the rapid fires. I'm going to add in a couple that relate to proof of impact, but maybe just to get started, just to get to know you better, Floor, what book is on your nightstand right now? <laughs> actually, a friend just gave me a book called Humankind. I only read the introduction because I actually don't read a hell of a lot other than the Eastern philosophy. But the introduction was phenomenal, particularly in this time. It was basically saying that when Hitler was putting pressure on countries during the Second World War, he thought that adverse circumstances would bring out the worst in people, right? So if you threaten to bomb somebody and you bomb them, it will basically deteriorate a community and a civilization because they're all going to start fighting for resources, etc. What they found actually Actually, and the example they give is the Blitz in London when 80,000 bombs fell on London over the course of the Second World War. People, when they are faced with adverse circumstances, corona, environmental challenges, economic challenges, war, they don't regress. They actually step up. And why do they step up? Because they have a common goal. They have a common value where everybody is joining together to fight an enemy or to make the world a better place. And I think that is probably the biggest motivator that we have right now when there are a lot of adverse threats on our society and on ourselves, that this is a chance for humans to elevate and actually leap to higher shared common values. So I thought that was super inspiring. So yeah, when, we, when we're getting up in the morning to change the world, we need the right beverage. So, <laughs> so what is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? The first one is a caffeine-free, but then by 10 o'clock, I love an almond uh, cappuccino. Humankind sounds like the, the type of book that, that would give me a lot of hope right now. Is there anything else that's giving you hope right now? 
Yeah, I think the next generation, right? So I don't know, uh, you guys probably, I mean, Eve, I know you have two little kids and we haven't spoken about your kids and their ages yet, but we have uh, four kids that we look after and our 15-year-old came downstairs the other day with a new business plan and he was very confident about it. So he started off saying, hey, are you like me where your parents, you know, have like these conversations at the dinner table and they start talking about sustainable development goals and you just think it's all just a bunch of gibberish. I don't understand what they're saying and I don't understand why it matters. Well, if you're one of those people, you should join me because we're creating K9, which is the nine goals that kids care about. (laughs) And we're going to express them in a way that they actually understand what's going on. That's the kind of stuff. And it's not because it's my son, but I just think it's very... Yeah, enlightening and and encouraging to know that the children, our next generation, are far more conscious of what they're eating, how they engage with people, and what the planet should look like. And that that's the hope. Definitely. I always think that the older generations underestimate the younger generations pretty consistently. I think we're in pretty we, good We hands. just need to transfer the power and the wealth to them, and then we're sorted. That's right. I would like for my son to work with your son on canine. <laughs> so, <laughs> he, he if up. he needs an intern, yeah, we can make that happen. He does. He's good he at does. Zoom, too. Um, Great. Yes, exactly. That's, that's very, very inspiring. So what is one trend you're watching in your industry? So I think that the, the trend, although it's, it's, it's only a small trend, it, it is the data-driven approach of investors. And I actually mean this in the broadest sense, not just impact investors. I think the entire investment community is now recognizing that there's some correlation between ESG and financial value. And I think they're now intrigued to find out more. So rather than just playing some lip service to a policy document, I think there is a genuine curiosity. Can we find those those factors, those data points that are non-financial, because those we've been studying for decades or centuries, but can we find those data points that are actually meaningful not just, I mean, obviously determine future financial value, but I think they're all recognized that the future financial value is embedded with social and environmental outcomes. And I think there's a, there's a curiosity around there, which I'm obviously very pleased about. But it's just a curiosity. It's not like a translation to everybody starting to measure everything yet. So you say you say you don't read much. Is there a podcast or a website or any newsletters that you use to kind of keep up on current events for impact sort of investing and I mean I only that's another thing like our industry is a little bit limited in that so I mean other than the the what's it called the CB insights which is just more of an investment channel I mean the impact alpha has been like the go-to and then I actually think that the only one with original content is Eva with the conscious investor and the podcast because it's just more original and it's far more in depth than anything else that's out there Thank you. And just to give, I, I need to give to full that, credit. Flatter, flatter your host. I need, <laughs> I need to give full credit to Ed as my partner on no. this, on this podcast, but no, I appreciate that. And actually just, you know, we can put this in the show notes. We also did a piece with you, Fleur, on the conscious investor that I think provides yeah. a different, slightly different perspective, kind of your high level thoughts around, you know, what you're doing as well. So we'll make sure that our audience gets that. Maybe last question here. How do you, unwind with, you know, four kids and running a business and being involved, very involved in YPO and other networks. 
There's a saying which this Indian enlightened soul came up with at the beginning of the 20th century. He was a young man who traveled to San Francisco and Tokyo to give these electrifying lectures. And he basically came up with this quote, which is saying, intense work is rest. So it's again, it's not so much what you do. Like for me, my work isn't my work. It's just what attitude do you have to what you do? If you treat everything that you do, not as necessarily your idea or your company or, you know, your mission in life for your children, but you're able to have a little bit of a sense of objectivity around it, actually everything becomes pleasant. And, you know, you have energy and you gain energy rather than having an energy drain. But saying that, that's that's obviously what I feel like 80% of the time. I still have 20% of the time when I'm just, you know, frustrated and exhausted like everybody else. And what do I do then? I surf, I hike up a mountain, I cook. And ideally, I just chat with friends. But in this whole Corona period, we have been a little bit isolated down here in Cape Town, considering that most of our friends are global and we haven't really been able to see much of them. We'll have to talk about the sharks (laughs) another time. (laughs) This is the last rapid fire question. What is one piece of advice you would give to your 20 year old self? There's a lot of 20 year olds out there listening with bated breath. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so I would say it comes back to what I said a little bit earlier. It's not such so much about what you do in life that matters, whether you, you know, do amazing studies or whether you'd set up an amazing company. It's really how can you relate, right? So how can you relate to the things that you do, the things that you care about to other people and living your life more through the eyes of almost like an actor who goes on stage plays its role, contributes where he can. In fact, I think Obama said it really, really nicely in one of his interviews with Bear Grylls, who's like this adventurer. (laughs) He said, just be useful and kind. Well, not just, I mean, it's pretty hard. Be useful and be kind. And I I would actually stick with that. Just two more questions for us to wrap up. I know you have a team that also helps you to implement the technology side. And I see you also as a conscious leader and imbuing social impact into your leadership style. How would you tell us that that expresses itself? How how are you bringing social impact into your leadership style? So I think think that's the key. Like as what I just said, it's not about what you do or whether it's your business or your team. There's three things to be like really successful as an endeavor and that is you need to concentrate so you all need to be able to go after the same thing right and then you have to be consistent so you have to all go after the same thing all the time over and over again which means as a leader you have to walk the talk like any leader that is inconsistent will not be accepted by its team and the third thing that's the third c is you will never be successful unless you recognize that it's an entire endeavor that requires cooperation i know that people sometimes admire these guys like a steve jobs and think that they were the gods who did everything on their own like they didn't you know everything that you do requires the participation of other people and i think recognizing that appreciating that and making sure that as you say in america you know there's no i in team i think that's a hugely important thing to bear in mind particularly as the world has become pretty complex looking five ten years out what's your vision for proof of impact and for yourself so I will be hiking, surfing. No, I think actually it'll be the same thing that I do right now. So Sharks I think, will. I think, <laughs> we haven't seen a shark for a few years, but actually maybe now that we've, 
you know, clean up the air, they might be back. I think in 10 years time, Eva, I truly believe that we will have an investment world where it will be the standard that we look at every single thing that we purchase and invest in with these three uh, components. So what is the risk? What is the return? And what is the impact? And that could be negative impact or no impact, but it will be a factor in everything that we decide on. And I don't think that it's just companies like Proof of Impact that will be, you know, catalyzing and and making sure and, and mobilizing this movement. I think there'll be a whole industry around it. But I actually think that also that will offer the next generation of investors finally a plethora of options that are genuine, authentic investment products where they are given the transparency to make a real judgment call because now you can't make a judgment call between two black boxes. And that I think is going to be also very liberating for that next generation of investors. Thank you so much, Flora. It's so great to have you. Thank you both very much for having me. And I hope I can maybe at some point return the favor in Cape Town with the sharks. It was (laughs) quite a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's great having you. Bye. Bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.